Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Dan, your host and on staff here at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. We're in the dog days of summer here in Madison, both trying to soak in those rays of warmth and also looking ahead to the upcoming fall when it'll cool down and it's really one of the nicer times to be here in Madison. We hope that you are also enjoying these weeks before the school year starts again. I'm excited to hand off this week's episode again to Greg Kutsona, the co-director for Science for the Church. In this conversation, Greg talks with Pamela Epstein-King, a professor of applied developmental science in the School of Marriage and Family at Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. King pursues, as she describes it on uh, her website, applied research at the intersection of human thriving and spiritual development. I think you'll get a good dose of her expertise in this conversation. The conversation ranges from theology to psychology to many other topics in between. And it makes a whole bundle of concepts and insights with technical or at least unfamiliar names much more understandable to the uninitiated. And I include myself in that group. Greg does a good job of guiding the uninitiated through and Dr. King is really compelling in describing how evolutionary psychology and Christian faith can actually speak to each other. So Greg and Pamela talked earlier this year, but the new book by Pamela and Justin Barrett came out just a couple weeks ago, and that's the new book that a lot of this conversation revolves around. That book is Thriving with Stone Age Minds, Evolutionary Psychology, Christian Faith, and the Quest for Human Flourishing published by InterVarsity Press in July of 2021. The book's sure to be a conversation starter, and it's written to be accessible, again, to those of us, especially outside the specialist circle. One more thing before getting to the conversation. At Upper House, we're unveiling a lot of our fall programming for September and October in particular, and we're really excited with what we have on offer. If you're interested in becoming part of our community and attending some events, head to upperhouse.org slash events. And of course, while you're surfing the web, looking at our events, we always ask you to leave a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app if you enjoy what you're hearing here. High ratings help spread the word and bump the podcast up in search engines and elsewhere. Okay, with that, I'm delighted to send you off to Greg Kutsona for a conversation with Pamela Epstein-King. Well, I, I'm Greg Kutsona from Science for the Church, and I have Pamela Epstein King here, who is going to be telling us about our book that's going to be coming out or, or very soon. But I want to tell you a, a little bit about her. But first, Pam, it's great to have you and to be able to talk with you about your work and this book and just uh, some of the insights you have about psychology and Christian faith. Thanks, Greg. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I mean, you're, you're pretty impressive, to tell you the truth. I'll just read the first part of several paragraphs of the Fuller, of Fuller Theological Seminary's description of you. Uh, you joined Fuller as assistant professor of marital and family studies in 2008, 
after serving the School of Psychology for eight years as an adjunct and research professor. Then in 2014, you were named Peter L. Benson Associate Professor of Applied Developmental Science. And just this March, uh, you are, were appointed Executive Director of the Thrive Center for Human Development. Um, along those other things, I mean, you have great uh, academic credentials, of course. You've written other books. You uh, have contributed to all kinds of scholarly articles. The most recent book that I want to talk about before I just put one play- point of personal uh, whatever a connection in is the most recent book you, you and uh, Justin Barrett wrote together is called Stone Age Minds, Evolutionary Psychology, Christian Faith, and the Quest for Human Flourishing. So uh, one last one last point that I think is fun. Uh, whoever is watching this might be interested. Is that I was at your wedding. My wife Laura and I were at your wedding. Exactly. So uh, someday those photos may may uh, show themselves to the world. <laughs> well, this is great, and um, you know we've known each other for a while, uh, and I'm in the past few years I've gotten to know more about your professional work. So. Still, uh, for those who don't know you, would you tell us about your background first as a Christian and then as uh, a specialist, as a, I'm going to put it this way, as a leading scholar in psychology, especially psychology and faith? Well, thank you, Greg. Thanks. Thank you for the compliment. Honor. Um, I sometimes say I was pretty much born and raised in a Presbyterian pew. Um, my family was very engaged with the First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, Illinois, um, which is near where I grew up, and we attended quite faithfully. We were often late, sat in the balcony, and <laughs> and I was kind of bored. I would sit there and try and figure out how big are those chandeliers in relationship to the actual pastor preaching <laughs> at this point in time. But I stuck with it, was very involved in the youth group, and somewhere along the way, I encountered God in a new way. Um, and realized that faith was not just about showing up and enduring a worship, enduring a worship service, but really was an active uh, relationship with a loving God and a Savior, Christ. And um, that happened for me in 1980 um, when I was a middle schooler. And um, faith has actually become uh, really been the most orienting part of my life since then. When I went to college, I ended up studying psychology. At Stanford, uh, more process of elimination than anything. Um, I ended up interning for Menlo Park Presbyterian Church when I graduated in 1990. Uh, there was a bit of a recession in 90, and <laughs> I had always anticipated going to business school, and I thought, I'll go work for the church um, until I can figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And that ended up my being on staff at Menlo for four years and leaving as um, the head of their university ministries. And it was a pretty formative time, challenging time for the church. And in that mm-hmm. process, I started attending um, Fuller Seminary. Mm-hmm partly because my salary uh, allowed me to take three classes a year. And being of good Scottish Presbyterian origin and frugal, I wanted to take advantage of that offering. So I started pursuing my MDiv. I got in the ordination track just in case. And so I ended up finishing an MDiv and pursuing ordination in the Presbyterian church. Mm -hmm. Um, But something funny happened along the way. Uh, When my husband and I eventually moved down to Pasadena, I started at the Extension Campus, um, I kept taking electives in the School of Psychology. And finally, the Dean of Psychology called me in and said, I I just want to meet you and um, let you know that you actually can't take any more classes in my school unless you apply for a degree. (laughs) So I was like, well, what what degrees do you have? (laughs) And a PhD later, 
Um, I ended up graduating from Fuller in 2000 with um, the Master's in Divinity and a PhD in Marital and Family Studies. And so um, I then was ordained two years later in the Presbyterian Church to a ministry of equipping and to Mm. my faculty position at Fuller at the time. Okay. Um, And that was really extraordinary. And um, for me, something very special, I was actually ordained in Memorial Church at Stanford University. Oh, wow. Yeah. At that point in time, and I'm pretty sure since then, I'm the only person who's been ordained in that chapel. (laughs) Well, and and to call it a chapel, I don't know how many people know that chapel, but it's quite amazing. I did a wedding there actually a few years back for a friend. And it's just such a beautiful place to, uh, it's a beautiful, a beautiful worship center place. And I can imagine that was, that was kind of a bringing together of your studies in your secular studies. If you don't mind my, you know, calling it that no, but yeah, studies outside that. of seminary yeah. mm-hmm. with your ordination. What an amazing thing, you know, it was amazing. Yeah. I was doing, uh, I ended up doing two years of a po- postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford. Um, so okay. that's how that happened to be. But in my, in this whole thing coming together, I was researching uh, Jane Stanford who actually built uh, the chapel in memory of her husband. That's why it's called Memorial Church. Um, Her husband died in the process of building the university. And so this was Memorial Church. And she built this grand church because she always wanted the spiritual and moral life to be Mm. at the heart of Stanford University. Um, And I have a handwritten letter that she wrote actually stating that. And it was so meaningful to me because that is my line of research is both a psychological a study of moral and spiritual development and how central wow. that is to thriving. So it was very, very powerful. Um, mm. And that whole experience continues to live on in my life. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I noticed in the, the bio, part of the bio I didn't read, of course, I didn't mention that you are ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA. So you, I could also said the Reverend Dr. Uh, Pamela Epstein King, but I'm probably gonna go more with Pam because that's how I've known you over the years. Anyway, Pam, it's, it's uh, it, it's it's significant in the work that you've done. You've done a lot with adolescents. Um, so, mm-hmm. is does that relate? Would you say to your own biography, or is it and or is it out of your own like ministry experience mm-hmm. in the church? Mm-hmm. Goodness gracious! I think it's both. And I think for me, coming to faith in middle school and actually experiencing faith being such a vital resource for navigating those crazy waters of adolescence and having a sense of, of having something that was not only just to hold on to and keep me afloat, but really enabled me to thrive and direct me in those challenging times um, was so powerful. But then also being in ministry, both working in high school age ministry and then university ministry or college age ministry, seeing that, especially in the context of Menlo Park Press in the nineties, an extraordinary affluent area that, you know, these kids have everything that they need and that some were not thriving or doing well, but to really see that it was faith so often that helped these kids manage whether their parents uh, were going through really difficult times or something traumatic happened or all was well. And they were, you know, student council president, Um, but faith seemed to be the common denominator. And I just Mm -hmm. became really curious of what is it um, in the experience of lived faith that enables a young person to become their best self and not get mired down by the complexities uh, and pressures and, and lack of clarity in adolescence. Totally. Well, and there's two directions I want to go. The first I'll say is this, As you know, uh, my wife, Laura, was very involved in the youth group at Menlo Park Presbyterian and 
was such a formative uh, experience for her. And I did not grow up in the church, so I didn't have that experience. But I, I really respect uh, when churches connect and in, in, invest in adolescents. So, I mean, that's just like a personal thing for me, right? Yeah. Um, the, the other side of it is that, you know, I th- in the introduction to your book, uh, mm-hmm. the, the book with, with Justin Stone Age Minds, um, you talk about this kind of dichotomy between, you know, uh, a society that in some ways is doing so well, but mm-hmm. has so many markers that mm-hmm. are demonstrating we're struggling as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it reminded I had an echo of that. I, we'll get to your book uh, in just a minute, but... Was there any, I'd be really interested, sometimes a good way to help people know where you are, and I don't mean to place you in a negative, sense, <laughs> but to connect you, yeah, to connect you with other people they know is, you know, what are some of the influences in theology, uh, broadly speaking, and in psychology that you've had in your life, or, or just influences in general that have formed, you know, the, your work? Mm-hmm. Well, um, at Fuller in the mid-90s when I did my work in theology there, uh, we had a very reformed, uh, for the most place, most part, um, systematics faculty. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And somehow I ended up in Ray Anderson's class, um, uh-huh. who was not necessarily, was not reformed. And his very relational and social understanding of the Trinity um, and a very Trinitarian theological anthropology really was formative to me. He wrote a book mm-hmm. that I think needs to make a comeback. It's called Being and Becoming Human. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. book that had this person who um, had a lot of psychological interest and had a background as an undergrad at Stanford in psychology. The whole theological anthropology, I didn't know what was happening to me, but that was really beginning to lay the foundations for how I would approach science eventually. Um, mm-hmm. So that ended up, I ended up, um, in a preaching fellowship at Cambridge, studying with Jeremy Begbie, and did a tutorial on Colin Gunton. Um, mm-hmm. And again, there was the social understanding of the Trinity. His book, The One, the Three, and the Many, had a profound impact on me. And along the way, Staniel Grantz, similarly, Miroslav Volf, who I got to have for my last um, systematics, his last year at Fuller, um, wow. were very influential. Wow. And Volf has continued to remain influential in his um work on uh, flourishing, and I have been involved um, for three years on his work on joy. Um, So he continues to be um, an influence. And I have to say, Oliver Crisp um, somewhat slapped me in my deep Trinitarian rootedness and and, and got me a bit reoriented on Christology Um, Uh and and emphasizing that, you know, when when I don't, when I say Trinitarian, I don't want to underplay who Christ is and the role role of salvation and incarnation. So those are all big influences. um, Yeah, that's great. Theological journey. Wow. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's almost like the people that you've been able to interact with and some of the experiences you've had, obviously, uh, have have been extraordinary. They're, you know, these world-class thinkers. Uh, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, do you want to say more? Sorry, I didn't mean to run over no, what you no, no, say no. there. Well, you know, I will say this is somewhat interesting to those interested in theology. But when I came on faculty, um, as a research faculty and administrative faculty in 2000, you do a theology exam where you sit at a table with like 20 theologians and they grill you. which had been my instructors, one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Um, And you write a preparatory statement, and I had really been in thick, in what was a bit newer, uh, the Trinitarian social understanding of the Trinity, um, and Bart was really in there, 
And, and I was guided that, that that may not fly so well at the Fuller Theology mm. exam in 2000, mm. um, but where now it would. So the last, <laughs> the last question I was given by um, uh, Rich Mao, which I still remember, are there other areas of theology or other perspectives that may not be as reformed that you think we might heed and pay attention to? So that <laughs> nicely set me up to offer my, and uh, what became a very important aspect of my work that I call the reciprocating self, but we might, we'll mm. probably unpack that a bit later. Well, what, why don't you go into that right now? Uh, the reciprocating self, that's a, that's a fascinating phrase. Say, say more about it. Yeah. So um, as a younger emerging scholar, I was tasked with teaching human development to psychologists at Fuller. And um, long and short, psychologists have written tomes of what it means to develop from, you know, how do humans develop uh, normatively. And I thought I'm teaching at Fuller. Um, and I was doing this with my colleague and senior professor, Jack Balswick, and another colleague, Kevin Reimer, thought, well, how do we decide what to teach? And I said, well, from God's perspective, you know, our best understanding of God's perspective what might be the type of development God hopes for? What's the goal or purpose of human development? And that right. pointed me towards telos. And so I really started thinking from a teleological perspective, what is the purpose or goal of human development? If we have all this psychological science and all these psychological tools, how might we use them in the, most, in the best way from a biblical perspective? So from there, I started championing this idea of our goal of development is to become reciprocating selves, not independent, autonomous persons, which actually most psychological theories are geared towards the development of an autonomous human being. And relationality is often a means towards the ends of being independent. But from a Christian perspective or Trinitarian perspective, that, that being unique but being in unity and related is key to who we are as humans. And that is, from my best understanding, part of the Imago Dei. And so yeah. as humans who are made in the image of God, we are created to become like Christ, but as our unique selves. So you're going to be like Jesus, like Greg, and I'm going to mm-hmm. do my best at being like Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit, like Pam. So as mm-hmm. our unique selves, but with and for others. Um, So that notion of telos um, became a very orienting concept in my both theological work and my psychological work. Wow. Boy, there's so much here. I mean, uh, I have so many different ways I want to go with this. I'll I'll keep the script a little bit just to restrain myself. But I think, personally, I can see the definite connection with your social Trinitarian Mm. theology, you know, doctrine of God, with uh, the importance of being made in the image of God as human beings is that relational component. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I, I have to say, I agree with that, but uh, that's not the important part here. The important part is that you you're making those connections for, uh, for your work. I just want to just clarify, just in case people don't get it, that telos just means goal or end, right? So when you're talking about a tel, uh, you know, teleological look, you're saying, mm-hmm. where are we mm-hmm. headed? Is that, is mm-hmm. that a, right, Pam? Absolutely. And I think that's really important to clarify um, because telos is a Greek word. So we find it throughout the New Testament, and often um, it might be translated as perfect, because mm. part of the meaning of telos is complete. But I think perfect, in terms of the way we as Western individuals, in terms of perfectionism, think about perfect, that's wrong. It's more about purpose. So mm. the goal or end to which, in the case of our discussion, that we've been, that humans have been created for. So it's not about becoming perfect, 
but it's really about aligning with the purpose for which God has created us. And we could almost just sit with that for a minute, honestly, because I think in understanding adolescence, mm-hmm. uh, there's a way in which a lot of adolescents struggle with not being perfect. I think that's mm-hmm. been only inflated since, uh, well, I see to my students in the university where with social media, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a curated perfection you see and whatever, mm-hmm. but really you're saying that the telos of human life is to be a part of who God has created us to be. Is that accurate? I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How would you describe our telos? Well, so I would say our telos um, is, you know, I, I, go beautific vision or how, really however you want to get there. United with God, love with God. Um, we are to be like Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, right? Mm-hmm, that we are to become yeah. like Christ. And, mm-hmm. and that's that's been something in my first version of a book, The Reciprocating Self, I didn't emphasize as much. The second one, mm-hmm. it's more dialed up that we are called to be like Christ. And, yeah. you know, I think all of us in Sunday school who attended Sunday school, you know, the Ten Commandments or, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, but we're given a lot of rules of this is how it means to be like Jesus. And, right. and it's a lot more complicated than that, right? Because right. the challenges, and this gets to thriving as, with Stone Age minds, that we are, our environments are constantly changing. And so mm-hmm. how do we become like Christ in changing environments? And how do we become like Christ as ourselves? Right. Not just right. some cookie cutter Jesus, but we're all going to be conformed to the image of God differently. So uniformity and conformity, totally different things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so great. I mean, Again, I don't want to stop what you're saying, because my main hope is to have people understand your work. Um, but maybe you could just tell us just a bit about what you mean by Stone Age Minds in the book and how that helps us grasp what you're talking about in terms of, you know, what tools we come with to tr- seeking to flourish, uh, to thrive as human beings. And we'll get to those two words a little bit in a minute. But, um, you know, to find that, tell us how to. How, how does uh, being, what does it mean to be, have, to have Stone Age minds and how does that constrain and also offer possibilities for, uh, for human thriving? Terrific question. Um, I'll back up one step and say, mm-hmm. um, one of the aims of my work is um, I have this notion of telos or what I believe God wants for us um, is to think about how do we use psychological science to help get us there? So in this project, evolutionary psychology was the tool that we had the opportunity to work with. Um, Evolution is an issue amongst the church, faith and science. And so all the work that you're about, Greg, how do we, how is science helpful to the church? This book was really focused on how do we understand evolutionary psychology in a constructive and helpful manner to help the church, or in my words, to enable people to thrive and become who God created them to be. So. The idea, with that in mind, I'll say the idea behind the phrase Stone Age Minds is the idea that the human species, homo sapiens, humans, people, that our brains are very special. And that from an evolutionary perspective, humans have not had to genetically adapt because we have this extraordinary mind, which is both the brain and our nervous system that enables us to solve problems by thinking through things, by using our mind where most species don't have the intellect or the intuitive powers that we have and are forced to genetically adapt. The weak Mm -hmm. die out, the stronger live. 
So mm-hmm. an example we use in the book, uh, over time, we're talking like hundreds of years, if the weather changes and gets colder, those who species that grow more fur are going to live longer. Humans, we're like, let's make a coat. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know? right. So we, our brains have not been forced to genetically change much since the mm. start. Obviously, yeah. humans have evolved somewhat, but by and large, we are changing the way we think and getting smarter. Well, we assume we're getting smarter. Some days <laughs> right. we're not totally convinced. <laughs> right. well, it's statistically over the distribution of humans, <laughs> right? right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then there's COVID. And then that, that right. gives us a whole new <laughs> life. And Zoom meetings, and, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah. Are we uh, yeah, evolving or devolving through Zoom? <laughs> right. I'm not sure. We'll see. <laughs> so. Yeah, so that's a, I mean, um, this is fascinating what you just said. Uh, I mean, I feel like, A, I'm just continuing to learn stuff from you and B, it, a lot of what you said is just so edifying. So uh, I, I I love this. This is great. Um, then when you take this makeup that we have as homo sapiens, uh, then you begin to want to, I don't want to say fit in like in some kind of, you know, you're trying to make something so that doesn't fit, but, but we are created with this through the mm-hmm. process of natural, mm-hmm. you know, through the natural processes. Mm-hmm. How do we thrive? And uh, in our email, in a uh, interchange before this, there I was uh, mixing and and matching thrive and flourishing, but those might be slightly different terms. So I would love also for you to say, you know, are there some nuances to thriving and thriving, uh, mm-hmm. and what those mean in terms again of our makeup at, at, with having Stone Age minds? Sure. Yes. Well, helpful to define terms. So within the world of psychology. Um, Flourishing tends to have to do with living a meaningful life that is satisfying. Um, It comes out of a lot of eudaimonic tradition and and particularly the field of positive psychology, which is more personality and social psychology driven for those of you who care about different disciplines of psychology and is really focused on adult populations. Now, the term thriving can just pause just for a second? Yeah. So eudaimonic comes from that word that Aristotle is often yes. known for, which we often translate uh, eudaimonia, eudo, meaning flourishing, et cetera, right? Is that right, Pam? Is that where it comes exactly. from in terms of, yes. okay. As opposed to hedonic, which is more like happiness, self-gratification seeking. Okay. So there's Great. this yeah. meaning component. But in the thriving literature, and this is too long with theoretical conversation, we emphasize that the individual is not only growing and becoming a more satisfied self with well-being, but that they are giving back beyond the self. Mm, And so some of the flourishing literature, and increasingly so, will point to this notion of giving back, but it really focuses on the individual and their leading a meaningful life. So if giving back is meaningful to you, it would be in your definition of meaningful. But the thriving literature is really about growing as an individual in their capacity also to give back. Okay, okay. So so I know the key continue. I want to ask you about uh, altruism in a minute, but go ahead and we'll get to altruism and, uh, uh, you know, um, behavior that's centered on other people and pro-social behavior. I want to ask you about that, but please, I don't want to interrupt the flow of what you're talking about. No, so, well, well, um, you could argue somewhat from an evolutionary perspective. When you have individuals who give back, that perpetuates a thriving dynamic between a, a flourishing, and when I, in my writing, I tend to talk about flourishing societies um, mm. and thriving individuals. So okay. a thriving yeah. 
if a thriving a person is not thriving if they are not enabling the world around them to flourish more fully. No, that's right. But I'm interested in the connection with the pro-social work because uh, I was reading, uh, and we've actually put into our newsletter at different points uh, some of the material you've done with the uh, importance of pro-sociality and so on. So I, I'm uh, I'm I'm very excited about that work as well. Yes. How, the, how so, does that connect? Great, because. Um, in our um, understanding of telos from a psychological perspective. So from a Christian perspective, I might say becoming like Christ as your unique self related and giving back to others, both intimately related and contributing back in a generous sense. From a psychological perspective, and we could dive into relational developmental systems or different psychological theory, we would say growing as an individual, that unique self, um, being related to others, both in intimacy, because we need love, we need attachment, we need to be known to grow, but we also need to give back, enable others to grow. And third, we don't talk about becoming like Christ in psychology, but we do talk about the importance of ethical and spiritual development. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I refer to that as aspirational development, so -hmm. that altruism, pro-sociality, comes to play both in the relatedness aspect, but it also deeply impacts our moral compass. Mm. And that is a central aspect of thriving. It's not just me, myself, and I, but it's also developing an evolving moral compass or set of ethical ideals and the motivation to pursue them that perpetuates thriving. Okay, right. So, even if you want to think about this as something that helps the individual, I know that you're working against that in general, but you could Mm -hmm. still say that we're going to be our best individual selves if we are giving to other people. That's just part of how we are made. How we're wired. Okay. Absolutely. Well, um, let's see. I I think one thing I wanted to make sure I helped uh, the listeners connect with closely enough is how do you connect that human thriving with our Stone Age minds. I mean, I think you've already been doing it, but maybe just to give you, uh, to, uh, give you an opportunity just to, to summarize what that, that connection mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Well, so this project, um, we had a task. Like, how does evolutionary psychology help us understand what thriving is? There's many different ways you might view thriving, and different philosophies have had different perspectives on flourishing and thriving. And so evolutionary psychology, we realize from an evolutionary perspective, um, the emphasis has always been survival, right? The survival of the fittest. And Mm -hmm. and when people survive, they are um, living longer and their offspring live longer. One of the things we've observed from a psychological perspective um, with an evolutionary perspective is that human beings, we live in what we call a niche. We have an environment. And we're always changing our environment to make our lives better. So I use the analogy of warm clothes. I live in Los Angeles. One of the ways, one of, in making our world better, we've created an ozone problem, right? So we have faster cars, better cars. They're more fuel efficient now. But because of all that we've built, we have, we're more susceptible to the sun, correct? So we have changed our niche We've developed tools, but we've created a new problem. So we've created a new gap. To bridge that gap, we wear sunblock. So we're always developing something, but we're pushing the edge. We're making a new problem with our old problem. Okay. Now we've created a problem. We're wearing so much sunblock. 
many of us are vitamin D deficient. So we have a new gap and now we're taking vitamin D. So this concept from an evolutionary perspective is that humans live in a niche. They want to make it better, but they're always causing themselves new problems. So an analogy that we use in the book that was Justin's that is beautiful is if you imagine kids jumping off a pier and when they, until those, do you ever been to camp where they have those big pillows, like inflatable, huge, and you dive on them. Well, they always go a little farther. So we're always in a sense making our boundaries a little farther. So thriving is effectively closing that gap. And we use the term minding the gap tongue-in-cheek because we use our stone age minds we think to mind that gap right so three things that are very important that came out of our work about how humans thrive these are three things that are very unique to humans is that we have extraordinary learning capacities so unlike other species many all species learn to some extent but the human capacity to learn is extraordinary and to develop expertise to develop sunblock make vitamin d the second is that we relate, that we have prosociality, that we are, we need others, and we are much more prosocial than others. And the third is we regulate. Mm. And as obscure or esoteric as some of these conversations are, regulating is so important. And that translates into the human capacity to set goals and to focus our energy on achieving goals. Regulation can also refer to um, our emotions, controlling our anger, mm. having self-control, having patience, yeah. knowing when to pursue something or not when to pursue something. And right. the human ability to regulate enables us to thrive and to continue to solve these problems. But these things leave us a little empty. They just make us effective at continually pushing that gap forward. Mm -hmm. But where's the telos or where's the meaning in that? Right. So from a Christian perspective, we recognize that we need to be purposeful about how we mind the gap, how we continue to close the gap, these problems that we create. How do yeah. we find meaning? How do we become more like Christ? How do we have more intimate relationships? And how do we become our best self? Right. Well, and I mean, um, I think in the book, you pull it off in a really beautiful way and uh, make it accessible for people. So obviously, uh, you have such depth and intricacy to the way you understand this. Justin Barrett uh, also is very, you know, has a, a lot of intricacy and depth in what he does. And yet you bring it back, I think, well in this book to um, to what it's going to mean for, for the people who are in the pews, as it were, and for Christian <laughs> leaders. And <laughs> So for us at Science for the Church, that's something that's really important is how do you take science, do really do it really well, mm -hmm. and then apply it to the church. Um, I, I was asked to give a, a summary of uh, what the book does. So here's my little summary. Um, and we'll, it's kind of, I get to this question in advance, of like, this is one of those questions of like, here's what I wrote, what do you think? But we'll see if it leads anywhere. In a world that seems to change at an ever-accelerating speed, Justin Barrett and Pamela Epstein-King help us to understand how our evolutionary past gives us particular ancient tools for demonstrating our world, for sorry, negotiating our world and why that's dizzying. At the same time, they demonstrate how our Stone Age minds can be transformed so that we thrive in the telos of the gospel. So 
Um, say a little bit more about that, maybe that last part, at least as I read, that transformational part. How do we take mm-hmm. what we have and, mm-hmm. and, and see it and then also transform it, um, you know, within our Christian faith? Mm-hmm. No, I thought your quote was beautiful. And, well, good. And, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. Well, and, and super insightful. I, I think, so the book, this is helpful to know, it was written pre-COVID. Um, mm-hmm. So we just take that in context. But right. it, things have changed at an even more dizzying rate in the last calendar year, since we've been living in pandemic conditions, adapting every week. I have three kids and just managing school schedules and where to, you know, begin early on, it was where to get toilet paper, right? We've had to adapt skills, competencies, um, areas of expertise that we never thought we needed. Um, But I love how you name that the world is changing and we know it will continue to change. My anticipation with AI and machine learning Jobs are going to be changing. The world is just getting started in its change rate, which is somewhat terrifying. But I love how you cast this idea of thriving in the talas of the gospel and that we can continue to transform and change, especially when we locate our story in the narrative of the gospel. So the world around us might be changing, but the gospel story does not change. We're obviously recording this just after Easter weekend, and we were brought through Maudie Thursday and betrayal, the violence, the death of the crucifixion, the loss, the waiting, and then the wonder and victory in love and light of Easter. And that story, whether it's Monday after Easter or, you know, Thursday in December, we always are part of that Christian story. And that is the story of thriving, of how we participate in God's ongoing work of creation, redemption, and flourishing in this world. And thriving is not static. It is a process. And it is our continued participation in that story and God's work. That is when we thrive. And there will be ups and downs. Uh, is there a way that uh, all that was exactly what I was looking for? Uh, not the compliment, although I'm thankful for complimenting on the, on the quote. It does, it will adorn your book, so that's good. It'll be in there. But um, but I'm glad because it, it, that's what that did strike me about that. Like I really appreciated the way that you're going into this, the depth of the insights we to some of the depth of the insights we can gain from evolutionary psychology, mm-hmm. what we understand from psychological science, which to me is really. A, a great way of connecting with the gospel science with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think there's ways particularly, or I don't want to get, you can get to action steps if you want, but are there practical ways that either Christian leaders, Christian pastors mm-hmm. and or people in the pew can take what you discovered and you know, put it into church life, their uh, social life and so on? Totally. Well, I think like from my perspective, the biggest takeaway is that I really believe that God has created us to thrive. Mm -hmm. He has not just created us to survive, not just to even mind the gap, come up with the next invention, which is going to cause another problem, and then we'll get over that. That is not what God has created us for. But God has created us to participate in his ongoing work in this world and to do that through knowing God, experiencing God's love and grace, and growing into the person he created us to be. It's amazing to me within the Christian church how we rejoice that Psalm 139, that we're all these amazing creations. 
the fruits of the spirit. We all are the, the gifts of the spirit. We all have different gifts. But yet there's such pressure for conformity of this is how Christians do it. This is what it should look like. You know, nope, you're not in our denomination. Nope, our church has to split because we're doing it differently. But there's this incredible unique invitation to become who we are. And, and I think we need to be stewards of who God has made us to be. Yeah. And so one of the notes that I've been known to hit in my thinking on thriving is that you know, we talk often about the abundant life we have in Christ. Um, but my experience, especially of the more evangelical church, both growing up and in my professional life, is that we so emphasize, and this is not to undermine the extraordinary gift of grace, but we emphasize what Jesus has saved us from, mm. death, sin, but we do not put the amount of energy into what Jesus saved us for. Mm-hmm. And I really yeah. believe that God saved us for relationship with him, to mm-hmm. build his kingdom. And to do that, we need to be ourselves as individuals and related. And I think if pastors can give their congregation, the people that they shepherd, that vision of like, your job in this planet is to know Jesus and to become like Jesus as yourself, because God created you and God is working through you in this world. And our job is to show up as God's loving presence as ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Like I said, there's, there's just moments where I'm, I, I know I'm supposed to be asking the questions, but I'm just kind of taking in what you're saying, because I think that what we are designed for, uh, where we move into, you know, and you're not always looking, it's great to look back, uh, mm-hmm. at where, you know, maybe the day you were saved, uh, to yeah. use that language, the day that you became a Christian, the day that, you had a more of an awakening and all those things the day you were saved from a sin that was really overwhelming you. And yet, like you said, we also want to be looking forward because there's something really beautiful about what God has for us. And it makes a lot of sense. I think of why we have this, uh, you know, this hope for that comes through Easter of something more. Like, it's not like we just have everything in the past. There's a lot more that's going to be happening and flourishing will be, will be happening into eternity. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I often talk about thriving is both, you know, eschatological. It's it's happening now, but it will fully happen on the other side of eternity. Mm -hmm. And and that's and I think for pastors to impart that vision um, and to structure their ministries to enable people to become who God created them to be. And that's through relationships. So we know we need good relationship skills, um, which, you know, some pastors have, some don't, um, some parishioners have, some don't, we all, we all have growing issues. Um, But I think that's really important. And one of the deepest calls in my work is, oh my gosh, we have the field of psychology. We have tools. We actually understand a lot of things about how to enable people to become their better selves not just freed up from neurosis or their mental health issues or anxiety and depression. We need to deal with all that below the line stuff, but there's so much we know that can help people thrive or flourish. And I would love to see the church be more intentional and mindful about how it can draw on psychological resources reframed in the narrative of the gospel um, to enable God's people to become who they were created to be and to bring glory to God. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, let me, uh, I'm going to ask you if there's anything you want to add, but let me just say one more time that this book, Stone Age Minds, that you've written with Justin Barrett uh, is just coming out uh, with through University uh, Ivy Academic, I think, specifically. 
Um, and I, I really commend it to the, the, the Science for the Church audience and people who aren't in the Science for the Church audience, because I think it helps people to see the way that psychological science can be brought to Christian life and ministry in a really profound and uh, ultimately a, a life-affirming way. And, uh, that, I think, is so powerful. Um, it's not dry. It's not somehow, like you said, just a, you know, here's what you're, how you're screwing up, but here's how this can lead you into something more deeply. Uh, I wonder if there's any last thought you want to leave, uh, leave us with, um, either from the book or from something that you just didn't get a chance to say. I will say just about the book, like, don't be uh, turned off by the evolutionary psychology part. Um, I was sharing with Greg before we officially started recording, in this process of writing the book, in the last version, Justin rewrote in his voice, which is so accessible. Um, talk about uniqueness of persons. Justin and I are so different, and it's super fun to work together, but he did an extraordinary job of weaving um, our the work that came out of our work together, um, m- things that are more my area of emphasis or his area of emphasis into quite a unified whole, and it's an extremely approachable book. So, so don't be turned off by that um, topic of evolutionary psychology. And I do see it's a great example of how science can be helpful. Um, but I, I would leave listeners with the idea of thinking about in their own life, uh, what is what is your telos? What is the purpose for which God created you? And, and not to get stuck on how you understand that now, because it will evolve. And, and this life is about transformation, as you put in your quote. Um, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, as we've learned. And how do we hold on to who God created us to be? Uh, those things that were meaningful to us as a kid, uh, that show up, I see a guitar in your background, whether quirky things or, you know, very strong things. And how do we implement them and, and use them in the current ways to, to build God's kingdom and to glorify him? And yeah. I think when we think about thriving as knowing God um, and being God's loving presence as ourselves, whether we're a graphic designer or a nerd like me, um, that that's a really helpful way to get at thriving. That's a great way to end. And so I just want to thank you again, Pam, for, for sharing your insights, for writing this book with Justin and uh, for the continual ministry you have to the church in helping us to thrive. Uh, I hope that anybody who hears us takes one more step in thriving. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for listening. Really appreciate <laughs> it and hope, hope it's helpful. Thanks to Greg and Pamela for that stimulating conversation. To echo Greg, this is a good conversation that highlights how psychological science can be brought to bear on the church, uh, broadly speaking. Uh, I really appreciated the focus on thriving as not a static state that one is trying to reach, but as something that is always changing and dynamic. And it reminds me of how we talk about thriving and human flourishing. We use those a little more indistinguishable than Pamela does, but uh, we have here a set of pathways that we talk about in our programming, different themes that we feel like are part of the journey toward developing into a closer relationship with God. And so we have that pathway language, that journey language, much in the same way that Pamela talks about thriving. And I also appreciated her focus on the tension, or sometimes historical tension at least, 
in the emphases of what the gospel saved us from and what the gospel saved us for. Of course, both of those halves of the story of the gospel are quite important and neither should be diminished. But it's also important to think through in detail and with reflection what it is we are saved for. And here I think of Upper House's uh, tagline, Think, Be, Do, and how that division into three uh, aspects can be part of that thinking through what is the good news that we are saved for. Thinking particularly on the truths of the Bible and of who God is and of what God created us to be. Be to be formed more like Christ through spiritual practices, through genuine community, through cultivating virtues. And finally, do. The ability that God has created in each of us to be creative and to invent, to build and to manage and to serve and to lead. So those are some of the reflections I was having at the end of the conversation. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to continuing the science theme with our next interview. Until then, go in peace. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.